Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Psalm 34. That's where we are today, Psalm 34. And our key concept this morning is this, rejoice in the goodness of God. Rejoice in the goodness of God. We're in a series of messages, just started it last week, where we're answering this hypothetical question. If King David had the technology of Twitter in his day, what would David tweet? And as we look at the, the Word of God, we have the answers to that question here in the Word in the, some of the, the short little uh, wonderful statements that David gives us in the Psalms, memorable verses penned by King David a thousand years prior to the coming of Christ. And today, the one that we focus on is Psalm 34, verse 8. Look at it with me. It says this, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Those are beautiful and reassuring words from the pen of David. But interestingly enough, they come after a frightening experience in his life. Psalm 34 just happens to be one of the few psalms, this happens a few times throughout the psalms, where the setting where the psalm was written is given to us. In the beginning, Psalm 34, actually the heading says this, of David when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech who drove him away and he left. Now, that story might not ring a bell in your mind. But it is a dramatic moment in the life of King David. Let's refresh our memory about this experience that gave birth to this psalm. It's t it, it, the experience is shared in uh, 1 Samuel 21. And at this particular time in David's life, he has already been anointed in secret as the next king, the successor to King Saul. He has already fought on the battlefield and, ki and killed the giant Philistine Goliath. And as such, he has gained a reputation as a great soldier. He has already served on and off uh, uh, in a capacity of court musician for King Saul and has gained a reputation for quite a good musician as well. But what he has been experiencing is as uh, David's fame has increased, soon uh, Saul's jealousy also increased. And soon David has to flee for his life running away from King Saul. So he's a fugitive, he's on the run, his life is despaired of, and at this point, he actually at one point crosses over into enemy territory, into the Philistine territory, and appeals for asylum from the king of the, to, the, to the king of the Philistines. It's recorded in 1 Samuel 21.10. It says this, that day David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. Gath is the closest Philistine city-state, uh, closest to Judah, uh, and ironically, it is the hometown of Goliath, the, the giant soldier that David has recently killed. It is also the seat of the government of the people group, the Philistines, that Israel was at war with for most of David's life. So right away, you could tell, it would seem like this is not a good place for David to go uh, to find asylum. 
Now, before we go into the details of that story, I want you just to note something because maybe you're already uh, noting a, a problem or an issue here. In the psalm, it says in the heading that this was written when he uh, fled to Abimelech, and in Samuel, it says he fled to King Achish. And, and right away, there are those who would look at that with only a surface understanding and say, hey, there's a problem, there's a discrepancy. The, the, the Bible is contradicting itself there. It's not really at all. What we need to understand is Achish was the king's personal name. But these kings had what we called throne names. Historians call them throne names. And, and the throne name for King Achish was Abimelech. It means father of kings. It's, a, it's an, honor, an honorable way to address him. So Achish is the Abimelech of his day among the Philistines. And the Philistines are the people group that were constantly at odds with Israel. We think that they migrated uh, to the southern Mediterranean coast from a location on, uh, near the, off, off the Aegean Sea. They're referred to in a lot of historical texts, ancient manuscripts and so forth. The Egyptians called them the Sea People. And it's from the word Philistine that we get our modern word Palestine. Because we owe that to the Romans. When the Romans conquered this area, they mispronounced the word Philistine and said it Palestine and it stuck. So now we call it that region, we have called that region Palestine. So the area that we're talking about in the Philistine territory is roughly what you would find on your modern day map as the Gaza Strip. And so there uh, is where David, uh, to where David fled, maybe thinking that no one would recognize him. After all, in the battle where he killed Goliath, you'll remember it ended in a rout. The Philistine army turned and fled, and maybe he thought, well, they didn't get a good look at me, so they won't, they won't recognize, recognize me. But it is clear when David goes to hide in the Philistine territory that he was not as anonymous as he would have wished. So we pick up the reading in verse 11. It says, but the servants of Achish said to him, isn't this David, king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. David finds out to his dismay they have been paying attention after all. They did recognize him. And some in the king's courts are whispering to themselves, I've seen this guy before. And I've heard of this man. And they're, they're mistaking, mistaken in the sense that he's not the king, but they're correct in saying that he is someone important in Israel and thinking, you know, he's not really on our side. He is our enemy. And things get a little tense in the court of Achish. Interestingly enough, later in David's career, he will do this exact same thing again. He will uh, flee into Philistine territory and try to find asylum among the Philistines from King Saul. But by that time, his reputation is so well known to be at odds with Saul and an enemy of Saul that the Philistines at that time assume that David is also an enemy of Israel. Uh, as we study 1 Samuel later this year, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. But at this point, at this point in time, 
All they know of David is that he has defeated Goliath, he has caused their army great harm, uh, and, and he's well known in the land of, uh, of Israel, and they don't believe for a moment that he is defecting. So David has to think fast. And in chapter 21, verse 13, it says, so he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the door of the gate, letting saliva run down his beard. And go to verse 15, finally Achish says, am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? King Achish says, I have enough crazy people. I don't need another crazy person. I don't need one more. And in that, David is able to flee into what we might call the demilitarized zone between the Philistine and Israelite territory. And there to, to camp out in a cave. And there is where David begins to gather followers around him. And in that setting, living in that cave, the man who pretended to be a crazy person composes what we have now as a tremendously literary psalm. Let's begin our uh, reading again in verse 1 this time. He says this, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all of my fears. Skip down to verse eight. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. You can hear in David's words that he recognizes that he had made a, a mistake that almost cost him everything. He had made the mistake of, of doing his own calculations, resting on his own judgment. I was taking refuge in people. I was taking refuge in my own sly way of figuring things out. I thought I had a plan that would allow me to escape my enemies. I thought I had a plan that would allow me to escape my troubles. And I only brought more trouble on myself in so doing. But in the middle of what was almost a disaster, I sought the Lord. And thank goodness that I did. I sought the Lord and he answered me. I wonder for how many of us that's our story today. I was heading down the road. I had charted a, a, a path for myself. I felt like I had life figured out. I felt all would be well. I was smart. I was cunning. I had plans. But somewhere along the way, my plans went south my cunning was exposed. It was nothing more than self-delusion. I was heading for disaster. And right there, I sought the Lord. And he rescued me. We are not designed to live by our own wits. We're not designed to live by our own wealth or by our own wisdom. We come to that point in life for many of us when it's disaster or Jesus disaster or Jesus and many of us will say that's my story I sought the Lord I know I couldn't live it live my life my own way disaster was looming there are real dangers out there there are real choices that confront us and we are meant to seek the Lord and find in him his way his strength his ability and we'll say with David taste and see the Lord is good just turn to him, taste and see. Now, taste and see 
is a call. And it's a call toward humility. It's a call away from clinging, even with white knuckles, to the way we think our life should go, the way we want our plans to go. You may scream out to God, these are my plans. I have a five-year plan, and this current detour is not on it. This heartache in my family is not in it. This illness is not part of it. This is not part of the plan. And when you see your plan going sideways, sideways, David says, seek the Lord. Taste and see, and you will find that the Lord is good. You see, there's theology behind his, his request. And the theology is the Lord is good. He's good. We use that word a lot, good. As Christmas time comes, we begin to remind the kids, you need to be good. Santa is coming. You need to be good. As we depart a friend's house after an evening of fellowship, we may say the words, be good, as they leave. And what we mean by that is we're usually talking about doing good things. We are comparing activities. This activity is good. This activity is bad. We want you to do the good things. It's a performance kind of statement. Be good. But when we talk about the goodness of God, theologically, we're talking about a quality within him. We're talking about something in his nature that causes him to act in ways that brings blessing and hope to his people. We are speaking of something very unique, uniquely uh, 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 possessed by God himself. I say that because I remember a, an exchange that Jesus had with a man in Mark chapter 10. It's, it's surprising in the way that it goes. It says this, Mark 10, 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him, fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And here's Jesus' response. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. That is a shocking answer to that question. I would think to myself, this man is low-hanging spiritual fruit. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to inherit eternal life? I'd thought, okay, well, let me explain it to you. This is how you come to know, uh, come to know salvation in your life. I thought that's what Jesus would do, but that's not what he does. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. There's a moment where that just seems like the wrong thing to say. But let me demonstrate. Jesus is not denying that he's good, and he's not denying that he's God. He's saying that the way that this man is addressing him is an implicit recognition that he is indeed God, because God has that quality of goodness in his nature. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, we could paraphrase it, do you know what you're saying? Because what you're saying is pointing out that I indeed am God. God alone has this nature of ultimate goodness, and his goodness is responsible for every blessing that we enjoy, even for the ones that we have grown so accustomed to that we take them for granted. I woke up this morning because God is good. And when I woke up this morning, gravity still worked on the planet Earth because God is good. And when I woke up this morning, the sun was just at the right distance from the earth that we neither will freeze nor be fried today. You may be a little warm, I hear, but 
we will still exist. Why? Because God is good. I tasted coffee this morning. I felt the breeze on my face. These are what we call the common graces. The common graces that we tend to take, take, it, take for granted after a while, just going through our life. But we should be reminded by them. All of this is because God is good. And then there are the big picture outrageous graces, the grace of the gospel and the goodness of God. He sent his son in the flesh and Jesus walking on the earth gave us an example of what it looks like to be good. He washes feet, he heals lepers, he comforts the hurting, he feeds the hungry and ultimately he suffers and dies for all of us making a way for our salvation. And he lives today and he says, tell the story. And what's the story? It's the gospel, the good news. Tell the story of my goodness and love. A.W. Tozer once said this, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It's absolutely true. Because that picture that comes to your mind when you think about God, that's going to shape your life and influence what you do. If when you think about God, all you think about is anger or wrath, you will flee him. When you think about God, if you think about weakness, you will ignore him. But when you think about God and you know he is good, you will love him. And God tells us about himself and his goodness. I think about that scene that's recorded in Exodus chapter 34. It's the second time that Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. God is giving Moses a do-over for the receiving of the Ten Commandments. He has, if you remember the story, previously smashed the first edition of the Ten Commandments in his anger. But God says, you can come back up. I'm going to give you another copy. We'll, we'll do it again. And as a part of that second experience, God passes by Moses and he speaks to Moses and he introduces himself by his qualities. We'll pick up the reading. It's Exodus uh, 34, verse 5, says this. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. I have emphasized this passage to you before, and I, I'll do this over and over again, because this is, uh, this phrasing of God, God introducing himself is found over and over again in the scriptures. This just happens to be where it first shows up. These words in some format of, the, of this, uh, this, this, this phrasing is found over and over again in the scriptures. I have found it in Numbers 14, 18, in Nehemiah 9, 17, in Psalm 86, 15, Psalm 103, 8, Psalm 145, 8, Joel 2, 13, Jonah 4, 2, Nahum 1, 3. And it's more than that. It just keeps on going. It's repeated again and again. And God says throughout the scriptures, here's how you come to know me. I want you to know, first, I am compassionate. That's the first thing God wants you to know about himself. He is compassionate. That's God's default position, compassion. I care about you. I'm your heavenly father, and I understand that as my children, you need my love. I'm compassionate. Secondly, I'm gracious. I will help you before you earn the right to be helped. 
You do not have to earn my intervention in your life. I am willing to give it. Thirdly, I am slow to anger. Is it possible to get God angry? Yes, it's possible. But he doesn't start always ticked off at us. I'm slow to anger. He's not always flying off at the handle. Fourthly, he says, I abound in love. It's not a minor trait. It's heaping over. It's spilling over my love for you. I abound in faithfulness. That's trait number five. I am true blue. You'll never wake up one morning and find me different. You'll never wake up one morning and find that I have turned my back on you. You will always see integrity in the way that I work. The sixth trait, I am forgiving. And when I forgive, I no longer see you through the filter of that sin. It's not holding over you like some debt that you have to pay. Because when I forgive you, I wash you clean. And I see you as clean. And when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, he sees us through the filter of God the Son. He looks at you and he sees Jesus. And then he says, quality seven, I am just. Does God punish sin? Yes. Sin has to be dealt with. It can't be overlooked. So he's just. Of the seven qualities that God lists over and over again in the scripture as he describes himself, the initial six are filled with compassion and mercy. David sums all of that up and says, he's good. But even that last one, the sense that he doesn't let sin go unpunished, he's just in the way he deals with us, that's good as well. Because you could not rely on the other qualities to be true if God was unjust in the way that he ran the universe. Why is it so important that God repeats this self-description over and over again in some fashion throughout the Bible? It's important because he knows this. We easily lose confidence in this. This awareness leaks out of our heads and out of our hearts. It leaks out of our heart when we're in time of, of loss, when we're in time of grief, when we're in time of heartache. He knows we have to run into this description again and again so that we can rely on its truth. It has to be expressed. It has to be rejoiced in. And so over and over again in the Bible, God says, this is who I am. These are the words that describe me. And David says, that's the goodness of God. Taste and see that the Lord is good. We're invited to allow that goodness in our lives. We're invited to call upon God and to seek his way. And it's always going to be a good way. But we must reach out. I'm reminded about uh, a man named James. James was, for some time, addicted to narcotics. He became homeless and he was living on the streets. Eventually, he entered a rehab program and through that rehab program, he not only got clean of drugs, but he came to faith in Christ. He was converted and his life was heading in a new direction. And James had enrolled in a community college and he was turning his life around. He's taking a course, one of those general ed courses where you, you go into a big lecture hall and there's hundreds of students, you know, big tall seats and the professors down at the bottom speaking. And this particular professor, for whatever reason, just had a chip on his shoulders about religion and particularly Christianity. 
and how it was foolish and it was superstition and it was responsible for evils in the world and uh, on and on he went. And James was growing more and more uncomfortable. In this huge lecture hall, hall as, as uh, the, the professor was speaking, James was way up there near the top and he was eating an orange as he was listening, just eating an orange. And eventually the professor stopped and he said, are there questions? People raised their hands for various questions, but James raised his hand and asked this question. A professor, did that orange that I just ate, was that, uh, did that taste sweet or sour? And the professor said, how would I know? You didn't, you didn't give me a taste. And James responded with this, don't find fault with something you've never tasted. Jesus changed my life. Taste and see, the Lord is good. And when we taste and see and find that the Lord is good, notice what it brings us to. Notice just as we scan this psalm again, notice the words that David says. These are the things that I need to do in response to that. Verse 1, I will exalt the Lord. It means I will praise enthusiastically. Verse 2, I will boast in the Lord. I'm going to tell of his wonderful deeds. Verse 3, I will glorify the Lord, exalt his name. Skip down to verse 9. It says, I will fear the Lord. In other words, I'm going to give him the reverence that he deserves for who he is. Skip down to verse 14. I will turn from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. It means I will honor the Lord in my life, in the way that I live, because I have been changed. Verse 17, he says, I will cry out. Why? Because there's going to be need for God's goodness to show up in my life over and over again. So there's going to be a willingness in my life to call out to God and make sure that I'm not trying to do this thing called life all on my own. And sometimes I know that I'm going to have to be redirected as I call out to God, but I'm willing to do that because I want what God has for me because God is good. I wonder if you're in the middle of a life redirection. I wonder if you've experienced disappointment, maybe some failure. Maybe you're misunderstanding who God is, thinking that all he's doing is punishing you. I want you to know that God is always good. You can turn to him, cry out to him, and you will find him. And maybe you have to do that for the very first time. And you may be here today or you might be watching online and you say, you know, I've never really called out to God for forgiveness at all. I'm going through the motions. I go in and out of church. Once in a while, I tune in on the internet. But I've never come to that point where I, in humility, ask Jesus to give me new life, new hope, new purpose. I've never said yes to being born again and setting out on a new direction with him. If I'm describing you today, these words are most important for you to know. Taste and see. Call out to God and you will find in Him goodness because the most premier example of the goodness of God is Jesus Christ on the cross taking the curse on Himself so that we don't have to endure the curse of the punishment of our sin. And He will apply that forgiveness to you if you call out for it. And maybe you need to do that. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And if I'm talking about you, about your spiritual situation, I'm going to help you 
call out to Jesus, maybe for the first time, simply by praying a prayer that I'm going to ask you to repeat silently in your mind. God will hear your prayer. And I'm just putting into words the kind of emotion of faith that is called for. These are not magic words. But if you need to taste and see that the salvation that Jesus offers is real, you say something like this. Lord Jesus, I need you. I believe you can forgive my sin. You can be my savior. I repent of my sin today. And I trust you for salvation. Make me your child. I want to start over with you. Lord, I don't know if there's anybody here or anybody watching who's prayed that prayer. But I do know that it is your heart's desire that all of us reach out and seek the Lord. Some of us face disaster without you. And Lord, we seek you this morning. And for anybody here or watching online who might have prayed that prayer, I pray that you would give them assurance right now that you are taking over. Right now that your goodness is working in their life and that they are your children. Bless them with that assurance, we pray. And for all of us, Lord, thank you that you are constant in your goodness. We worship you and we love you. We look to you for the answers that we need. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.